Thank you, Jessica. What an honor it is to um, be in the presence of the saints this morning. I'm so grateful uh, for Noah and the worship team that lead us into the presence of the Lord and are willing vessels to be used by God in that way. And I just am so encouraged in that over 2,000 years ago, you know the story that this man who called himself the Son of God and God died and supposedly rose again. And then yet here we are 2,000 years later still singing about that very event. There's still a vigor. There's still a belief. There's still a faith. Because as Corky mentioned uh, this morning, we're here to hear the living word in the presence of a living God. So it was so encouraging to hear the praises of the saints fervently worshiping the true and living God this morning. And I thought about of what a powerful witness that is. If you think about what other people in the world could be doing at this moment, God's people, at least in this place, are focusing on Christ, exalting Christ. So thank you for serving as an encouragement to me. Uh, you probably realize that we're doing things, we're supposed to do things out of order on Communion Sundays for something different, but I actually slipped, I changed our change and slipped back into our regular order because as I came upon Matthew's passion on the Garden of Gethsemane and realized that it was at least pretty close to our time of celebrating communion, I couldn't resist the temptation to actually have us come into this passage, these ten verses together to understand Christ and, and the cup and the agony of Gethsemane and then come to the Lord's table and Celebrate in the cup as his saints, as his people. That's all represented in this passage. So I couldn't resist that temptation. So I just kind of moved things, rearranged the gospel in chapter 26 a little bit so we could come to this moment. And I'm sobered and excited about it at the same time. And there's only a few more chapters left in Matthew's gospel but you know by now that he has slowed down because really it's just a, a few days. And he's slowed down now. And he has been heralding Christ as king from the very beginning. But there are times in his gospel where he missed months. We don't know where, where did Jesus go? What did he do this month and that month? He doesn't put it all together. But here he slows it down and he goes into very, very important detail because this is... Meat and potatoes for the Christian faith. If you um, are intense, an intense person, then this is the passage for you. If you like drama, it doesn't get more intense than this or dramatic than this passage that we will look at this morning. And I think that you will see why I wanted to save it for our communion Sunday. So it's just ten verses. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death. 
Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping with their eyes for their eyes were very heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We know the context of this passage because we've seen before it. and We've already gone after it. Jesus has been anointed with precious, costly oil in Bethany. Then he and his disciples made their way into Jerusalem, the city, and they were they secured a room to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It was during that time that Jesus predicted Judas's betrayal. And it was within that scope that Jesus predicted Peter's denial. From that upper room, we pick the story up. He takes his disciples, they're still in the city, and they go to a very familiar place. We've heard of it many times, the Mount of Olives, because there are olive trees there. The Garden of Gethsemane is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It's a grove, an olive grove, where purportedly there was a olive press. And so this familiar place where they've, Jesus has taught his disciples there, they have prayed together. They've prayed on their own. It's a, I guess you could say, a spiritual place. Jesus has the mass of his disciples, that is the twelve, from the upper room. And they follow him to the outskirts of the garden. And he instructs his disciples, you stay here. And I'm going to go a little further in and pray. But out of those, he has three follow him a little farther into the garden. Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he tells them, you stay here, you watch and pray. I'm going to go over there and pray deeper still into the garden. The first point in this passage is the agony of the cup. And this is where things get a little mysterious because... Before Jesus even makes it to whatever spot he has in mind that he's going to pray before he even ever, ever gets that far. While the disciples are still following, something begins in him. He begins. Uh, there's a sensation. It's new to him. It's an agonizing, troublesome, sorrowful feeling and emotion and, and just a, a guttural thing that comes upon him. It's something that 
begins, our text says in 37. He, he began to feel this great sense of sorrow, intense physical anguish. And it hits him like a ton of bricks. By his own testimony, it was like death. This reminds me of, you know, when you're going throughout the day and then all of a sudden you, you get these aches and pains. Next thing you know, you got a fever and this flu or whatever sickness has come upon you and you've changed. You don't feel the same at all. Just out of nowhere and seemingly out of nowhere. This comes upon him. And there's really no external threat. It's just something that happens internally. The Princeton professor and scholar B.B. Warfield, perhaps you've heard of him, a profound theologian. He says that this word troubled is the word for horror. And what that means is that he was walking along. Something came over him, a crushing, overwhelming, devastating sense of horror, a mental and spiritual anguish and agony that made him feel like he was dying. Of course, we know Luke's account that when he makes it to his place of prayer and falls on his face, hits the ground before his father, he is in such anguish that he is a he is wet with sweat. He's drenched with sweat, but not just sweat. Luke's account says he was sweating drops of blood. Blood is mingled. It's very unusual for humanity to sweat in that way, but it's possible. I used to work cattle on the farm and sometimes we'd get them into the corral and then through the chute and then we'd get them in the head gate because we need to worm them or give them their shots or whatever. It's a necessary thing to take good care of the cows. And every once in a while you get that one that was crazed and you could tell if you... If you worked with cattle, you could tell there's a look in their eye. And you know, you, this one is crazy, totally unpredictable. You just need to keep your distance. They're the kind that'll just try to, they'll hurt themselves trying to get away. They're terrified. And when we would get them into the head chute, those are the ones that would have just a little droplets of blood coming out of their nose. Because it's so intense or so terrified. Totally unpredictable. Now, with humanity, it's very unusual, but not impossible. And so there is Jesus. And it's so horrible and it's so sudden that it puts him on the ground, puts him in the dirt. But what is this that began? It's mysterious. Could Jesus be caught off guard? It certainly can't be something that he did not know was coming. Jesus himself has been really the only one that was in the know regarding what was coming. And he's always talking about the hour, the hour. He was looking for the hour. He lived for that hour. His goal was that hour. He understood the suffering. He knew what he was going to face. So how can something begin here that would take him to this place of such agony? If he knows what's coming. 
Why here? Why in this way? Why so intensely? I mean, there are others, even people of God after Christ, who have faced things, situations of execution and death with more poise. I think of the times of the Reformation, where countless people were burned at the stake for preaching the gospel, giving their lives. They knew that there was a risk involved, and yet they did it anyway. I think of the case of Hugh Latimer. He was to be burned at the stake, and he and some of his uh, Reformation buddies were tied. They were bound to stakes. You've seen the movies, and you see it on TV. You're bound, and there's wood there, and they light it on fire. And it's a gruesome, torturous death. And Hugh Latimer was bound to his stake facing the burning. And he turns to one of his fellow friends. He says, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. He's not crying and begging for his life to be spared. He's not in the dirt. He's not agonizing. He sees this as a wonderful opportunity for God to be glorified. And yet, why is Jesus, if he knows what's coming, reacting in this way? Well, Jesus tells us what it is several times, actually, in this text. That which brings him to this place of sorrow and puts him in the ground, he calls it the cup. Three times. Oh, man, he's, he's talking to his father about this cup. that makes him feel as he is dead. In ancient times, the cup was taken literally in that when you referred to the cup, you referred to the cup of poison. It's what people used back in the day, not that it's not still used, but in the day people would sneak. If they wanted to execute you, if they wanted you out of the picture, they would sneak a poisonous concoction into your cup and you would unwittingly drink it. And it had a bad reputation because it wasn't like this quiet death. It was some kind of poison that would literally kill you from the inside out. It would like melt your insides. It was grueling. It was torturous. It was absolutely terrifying. And then in biblical times, it became, it became used as a metaphor for the wrath of God. The wrath of God is terrifying. It's something that you would want to avoid at all costs. It's staggering. And then the cup could be defined as God's just wrath against human evil. That's the cup. God's just wrath against human evil. And you hear it pop up in Old Testament accounts. One in Ezekiel chapter 23. Thus says the Lord God. You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. A cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister, Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. 
Isaiah 51, 7. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup. Staggering. It's the wrath of God's justice on human evil. And while many have faced death, for God's sake, and while many have faced terrifying forms of torture and death, no one has ever anticipated or felt the wrath of God, not just for their own sin, but for the sins of Of the mass of humanity. And that's what Jesus was bearing. On the cross. That bent his body down. All those sins. All of that accumulated wrath. Just wrath. Against sin. And he's pleading with the father. He's wrestling with this. And the effect that it is having on him. He knew that he was coming. And as Jesus often did when there was a big decision to make. Or if there's some kind of preparation. He tells his disciples. You wait there. I got to go spend time with my father. And I enjoy spending time with you. But this requires just me and my father. And the new thing that he began to experience that came upon him as he goes to his father to prepare for this. He said his father's not there. It's a separation. Because part of the wrath of God is that God withdraws himself. It's the separation. And you read in Scripture in Romans where Part of the wrath is giving man what he has been begging for and itching for the whole time. I just want to be rid of you so I can go do my own thing and worship my own gods and call, make my own decisions. And God says, okay. That time of wrath is when God gives our hearts what they've been longing for all along. Part of the wrath, and we, we look at hell and we see that we, it is a just desert for us to burn eternally in light of our sin and crime against God. But that's just part of it. The physical torture and whatever comes to our imagination. That's part of the wrath. Perhaps the most painful is the fact that God withdraws himself from us. When you, when you talk about hell as a godless place. All of the things that we experience, all of the goodness, every good gift comes from above, First John tells us. So anything that is remotely good in this world comes from God, sinner or saint, you get it. Not so when it comes to God's wrath. And that's how he punishes sin. The meat of that punishment. Now, you can imagine what hell is like when you get there and now you have this realization that you never had before. The realization that 
Everything I ever desired, everything I longed for, I thirsted for in life was God. And now I can't have it. And you live like that. God punishes sin by giving the heart what it wants. Second Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. The apostle says, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is something that is obeyed. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. To be cut off from all things God is the ultimate punishment. Because we were created. We were brought into existence. Everything about us physically and spiritually literally was created and put together, knit cell by cell to experience the glory of God. To enjoy God. We look at nature and you think about plants and what do they need to thrive? They need sun and they need water and they need soil. And you take a plant and it knows that it's going to bend towards light because it knows that's what I need. We were created to need God in every stretch of the imagination. That's what makes us thrive and enable us to be what we were created to be. It's a need and it's, it's a good need. It's a helpful need. It it's, uh, makes us whole. It's, we also need oxygen. It's like needing oxygen to breathe. It's like needing to eat. In order to stay alive, you have to eat in order to stay alive. What a terrible thing, right? No. That's a wonderful thing. I'm just eating to stay alive. We not only have to eat to stay alive, but in the midst of it, enjoy wonderful tastes and experiences. Look how big food is in our culture. Cooking show on every channel. I don't like any of them. I just like to eat. I don't really, it doesn't matter how many spices you put in it. I either like it or I don't. What a chore to have to eat to stay alive. No, it's a blessing. Everything about us was built and constructed to just soak up the rays, the water, whatever. Every, all things God. And when we cut those things out, we're starving ourselves, we're suffocating ourselves from the very thing that we were created to do. If it were not for sin, we would be like that plant every time. We would constantly be bending towards God. We would be doing anything we could to enjoy and be in the presence of God. But because of sin, we think we have more important things to do. But that's not how we were created. And so you realize that hell is when that person realizes the very thing that they've craved and needed. They realize I went after that. No wonder that didn't satisfy me. No wonder this didn't satisfy me because God was meant to satisfy me. And now I can't have him. So there's Jesus. He and the father are one. And he has taught so well this painted the picture of this relationship that he wants 
his people to have. It's possible through Christ to have the relationship. What kind of relationship? I want you to be one as my father and I are one. Holy Trinity, you just can't get any tighter. You can't get any more loving, warm. It's, it's the epitome of relational oneness. And Jesus in perfect harmony goes to his father with everything. And it's incredible fellowship. I mean, what would it be like to even watch, just watch Jesus fellowship with his father? He praises the father. He adores his father. He blesses his father. He obeys his father. He he draws power, warmth. He delights in his father. Everything comes from this relationship. And it appears that when he went to prepare himself in the garden, prepared to pray, prepared to go to the father and draw what he needed as he has so many times before. The comfort There's nothing there. Commentator Bill Lane says the dreadful sorrow. And that anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs. It's not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the father. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. That's intense. Timothy Keller says he turned expecting heaven and the Father and there was hell. Jonathan Edwards hailed as the greatest American theologian that ever lived. He says the agony that Jesus experienced in the garden was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. God the Father, as it were, set set the cup down before him, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He now had a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and he viewed the raging flames and the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was going to suffer. It's a sip of the father's wrath made him stagger and sweat drops of blood. All the weight of human evil. And God's just wrath was before him. We have Christians that don't like to talk about hell. Don't like the idea of a place of punishment. They just want to talk about God's love. And yet, God's wrath is a manifestation of God's love. How is it loving to keep us in this situation of constant misery and pain and death, of constant failure, of constant succumbing to temptation, 
living in a world where we are constantly overpowered and cannot bring ourselves to the place that we know where we're created to be. And so God, in his love, brings justice and says enough is enough. And rebirths and recreates and restores things. That's love. And that's what's taking place in the garden because it is Christ that will bear the wrath of the mass of humanity's sins. That's the agony of the cup. And then we have second what I borrowed this from Jonathan Edwards, the mouth of the furnace. So Edwards says that God took him to the mouth of the furnace. Why? Why would God do that? Why a preliminary form of suffering. R.C. Sproul used to say that Jesus didn't just drink the cup. He drank it down to the dregs. There was not a drop of wrath spared as if to say he licked the inside of the cup of suffering. So every speck of evil that man acquired he drank he was not afforded the bliss of ignorance until it came Jonathan Edwards says Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was therefore God brought him And set him at the mouth of the furnace. That he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames. Might see where he was going. And might voluntarily enter into it. And bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. If Christ had not fully known before he took it and drank it. It would not have properly been his own action as a human being. But when he took that cup. Knowing what was in it. So was his love to us infinitely and more wonderful. And so was his obedience to God infinitely and more perfect. So now with full knowledge of the significance of the cup. He doesn't back down. But drinks it. Timothy Keller's take on this scene is is profound. He says, what we find at this moment, you never see in the history of mankind. Because what you see is a perfect obedience to the father. And a perfect love to the neighbor. In other words, what you see is the command of God Perfectly fulfilled. He is loving God. Not my will. Yours be done. And he is loving his neighbor. Perfectly as himself. With all his heart. With all his mind. With all his strength. With all his soul. Jesus is fighting this battle. Not just for his life. He's fighting it for the future. The destiny of all humanity. That is an intense battle to fight. He's carrying that weight, the weight of the universe 
quite literally, upon his shoulders. Now, what does he do during this time? He knows how intense it is, and he just tells his closest three. The closest three. Just, the rest of you stay out there, but you guys, you come here, and I'm going to go over here, and all I ask, I don't ask much of you. Would you just stay awake? Would you just pray? That's all. While I face one of the most difficult times in my ministry. And what do they do? Sleep. Sleep. Three different times. Jesus comes to them. Have you ever noticed how things are often in threes in Scripture? It's no wonder we get the expression three strikes you're out as if so you can't just excuse it. It wasn't just like a mishap because three times he asked them. And three times they failed him. In his time of need. Facing his greatest test. So he goes to man and there's nothing. There's no shouts of encouragement. You can do it, Jesus. Oh, he's down. He's sweating. Oh, Jesus, you can do it. We're praying. No encouragement. No consideration. That's how the human race cares for Jesus. I think the human race is personified in those three. And yet, look how Jesus cares for the human race. They're sleeping while he dives on the grenade to save them from the explosion of God's wrath. And he obeys his father. And it's a perfect obedience. And it's never been accomplished. And you had the test of man in the garden with Adam and Eve when everything was just beautiful. They didn't even know evil at the time. And they were given a test of obedience. You obey me, you live. You disobey me, you die. And here's Jesus in his garden with a test way more impossible to pass. Temptation couldn't be greater. And yet he obeys. Perfectly. For the first time in history, man completely fulfills the law of loving God and loving neighbor. While humanity plays the part of what? The villain. The ones who fall asleep on God. The ones who abandon him. What does Jesus do? He dies the death that we deserve. He is matchless. So under an ocean of divine fury, he obeys. And under an ocean of human transgression, he gives his life for the transgressor. If there there is any way to possibly not be deserving of what Christ has done and given, it's here. Just absolutely solid, amazing grace. So we're about to take communion and scripture tells us that when we do this as the saints it's the blood of the covenant it's the blood of God's promises and God never breaks a promise and so 
That's what we dip our bread into. It's, we dip it into this cup. Symbolic. It's symbolic of much of what we have studied this morning. We will dip it into what Jesus said. This is my blood. And this is my body broken for you. We dip it into, if you will, the fiery furnace. We dip it into, if you will, the flames of the furnace. Christ went as far as He could to demonstrate His love to us. If we ever doubt or fail to see Him trustworthy, I pray that it is now in the Garden of Gethsemane where under the weight of hell He did not break, but gave Himself for us. Jesus is what we need. All things God is what we need. And He makes Himself available to us all by grace. Jesus has earned this for us. And He invites us in. And that communion that He was cut off from in the garden preliminarily and then on the cross where He says, God, why have you forsaken me? Cut off. He was cut off from that communion so we can experience the fellowship and communion with the triune God here as blood-bought saints. I pray that as we come to the table this morning that we would crave God, that we would see all these things that I thought would bring me satisfaction, what my soul really wants, what my mind really wants, my emotions really want, is you, God. And you gave yourself to me. Let's come to the table adoring Him and fellowshipping Him and craving Him. May God bless the preaching of His Word.